0: For those of you who have forgotten, for those of you who haven't forgotten, and for those of you who never knew. By the time we got
1: to Woodstock,
2: Woodstock, an incredible film about an incredible event, is back.
0: some kind of uh, biblical, ethical, unbelievable, see? Woodstock, with a cast of a half a million outrageously friendly people. Do uh, you want me to explain it in plain English?
1: It's a dirty mess. Aww. Woodstock, the people, the vibes, the music.
0: Country Joe Rosby, Stills, Stills Nash Richie, Jimmy Hendrix
1: John Sebastian Shall not lie Ten years Stone The Who
2: Woodstock,
0: where it all began
2: Welcome. This is 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s. feel like we haven't been here for a while. Co-host Ben Reiser in Madison, Wisconsin. It, it's been a long time since we rock and rolled. I am uh, Mike McPadden. I wrote a couple of books, Teen Movie Hell and Heavy Metal Movies. I'm in Chicago. As noted, uh, Ben Reiser's in Madison. and uh, Tell us about yourself, Ben. Then tell us about tonight's guest. All right, I'll do all of that. Uh, but first, I have a
0: question for you. You you say all the time you wrote these two books. Yeah. Well, what's in your future? You got another book coming up? I keep seeing stuff yeah. on Facebook that makes me think you're working on a new project.
2: I am. I'm working on a new project, and uh, I'll let you guess. Just follow my Facebook. But yeah, I don't have okay. a publisher for it or anything yet. So. Well, that's what, that. That this is what I wonder. Is there sort of
0: a is there a, is there a legit sort of. Thing you have to do in the publishing business Which is to not tell
2: people what book you're working on
0: Because somebody might steal it out from under you
2: You have to just not do it because what you do Is uh, And uh, guests might know this about when you say Hey we got a recording contract or something like that And then it takes forever For something to come out I did that uh, twice with both of my books Where I said hey my Heavy Metal Movies is coming out and it took three and a half Years for me to write it and then another Year and a half for it to come out Or something so so what is it that you feel
0: embarrassed or you feel pressure on yourself
2: or other people keep bugging you about it? it could be all that. But, you know, you don't want to. Uh, I read some little uh, philosophy thing once about a uh, said, you know, be an architect. An architect doesn't like walk you through every step of the drawing. He shows you the building when it's finished. Oh, dude, I'm all about that. I hate yeah.
0: sharing anything with anyone that I'm not finished with. Right. What which I is which it. is why which is why I bailed out of the, the movie making business right away, because I hated writing screenplays. And I hated the idea of having to convince people to give me money to make a movie based on a screenplay, which is the blueprint. Yeah. But you got past that, Mikey. Yeah. McPadden. I have. I have. Uh, there's uh, another Mike here. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, let me just say something. I'm still not going to introduce Mike yet. Uh, well, you know, every once in a while, faithful listeners, we get a behind-the-scenes uh, missive from Mike McPadden. And when I say we, I mean me and Aaron Lee. And he lays down the law about what's going to be happening <laughs> with the podcast <laughs> in the future. And his latest missive, which I think is maybe two or three weeks ago, yeah uh uh, he one among many other things he said let's make sure that none of these podcasts are longer than the movies that we're talking about right which is a great great philosophy but uh, you know in in accordance with that philosophy anything under three hours and 45 minutes that we come under tonight we're we're good good to go we're good to go so i had that thought but i really did (laughs) um Uh, uh, shit. But now I can't remember what sort of digression I was about to go on. Ah, fuck it. Oh, well. Wait till we do Berlin Alexanderplatz. Yeah, wait till. Wait till, I say. Um, So, our guest tonight is my other dear friend, Mike. I have two dear friends in this world whose names are Mike. Uh, Mike McPadden, uh, who I was reunited with (laughs) after a 25 five year, uh, chill out period. (laughs) Um, and then Mike Lustig, who is our special guest, who, I I don't even remember. I know this whole episode was my idea. And I think it was because I bumped into Woodstock on, um, HBO max. Of course, it's been so long since I came up with this idea that the movie's no longer on HBO max. I had to go (laughs) through all sorts of hoops to find a copy to watch this week. Um, Because my memory is such that if I don't watch a movie, pretty much, really the best for me is to watch a movie like two hours before we're talking. Because that's when I'm freshest. But if I waited more than a week after watching a movie before we started talking about it, I wouldn't know anything. And my notes would be total gibberish to me. Anyway, when I had this idea, I think I really thought immediately of my other dear friend, Mike Lustig... Who is um, the closest thing I know to like a real-life rock star, and somebody who I think grew up um, under the influence of, of the sort of classic rock that we're going to be talking about a lot today—the uh, the groups that that played Woodstock. Uh, he's a, he's maybe the biggest Who fan that I know. Um, and uh but 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 listeners if you have any taste at all will know mike from his band ruth ruth and i'll just tell you the story of how i met mike lustig uh i was working at the park slope copy center and i was living and that was in park slope brooklyn and i was living above the park slope copy center in an apartment uh with my um uh soon to be wife but not quite wife yet katie uh and um I was working there for years, I think, many years. And then at some point, uh, Mike Mike Lustig uh, came in and uh, got a job at Park Slope Copy Center. And uh, the way I remember this story is that for a long time, I avoided talking to Mike Lustig because uh, out of the corner of my eye and within earshot, I would witness him. Talking to some of the other people who worked at the Park Slope Copy Center, mostly uh, younger women who worked there, talking to them about the blues and making mixtapes of uh, blues songs for them and then giving them those mixtapes and then talking more about those tapes and those bands. And if there's one thing I don't have a taste for. (laughs) is the blues. (laughs) And um, I also think I caught wind of the fact early on that Mike had a band. And my experience of being in a band, but also being a huge music fan, was that uh, anybody that I knew or bumped into who had a band, 99.999% of the time that band was terrible, And I didn't want anything to do with it. And I thought if Mike and I started talking sooner rather than later, it was going to come up that we both had bands and he was going to want me to like listen to his band and go see his band. And I'm like, I don't want any fucking thing to do with this guy, his band, these fucking blues mixtapes he was making, these stupid girls that he was talking to. Everything about him repulsed me. Now, I don't know how we broke through that barrier. Do you, Mike? lustig who hasn't said a word yet on this fucking podcast
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm allowed to talk. through no fault of his own let me see <clears throat> as i step on his uh attempt yeah. To speak. No. <laughs> yeah uh
0: you're gonna have to be a lot more aggressive i'm just lustig. i'm shocked i'm talking now <laughs>
1: yeah. uh how did we start talking like what happened uh, how did i how did you eventually
0: break me down
1: I don't I'm know. I'm sure
0: it was you. You must have been the really? social one. I think so. I, I'm not a friendly guy, and
1: what might have happened? This is a total guess, but uh, there were a couple of times where I had to go on runs into Manhattan with you. And oh, maybe yeah, maybe yeah, it was yeah. like a work thing, and we ended mm-hmm. up in the car together.
0: Yes, yeah, sure. And I think I probably was pretty straightforward with you in telling you why I hadn't talked to you up until that point.
1: I mean, I know we've both said that because I had the same experience. I didn't really want to know Ben only because... Oh, of no, I, I, no, didn't I, have, didn't, I did not know that. <laughs> I've, <laughs> Wait a told minute you, I've told you that a million times. <laughs> uh, it, was, it didn't have anything to do with mixtapes or anything, but right. I knew he was in a band and I didn't want to hear about it. Like, right. Because I, I had the same experience as you. It's just... So I really do think that we had this
0: conversation in, in, in the van on some, because we were both delivery drivers. But I think that we did in that conversation where we finally started talking to each other. I think we said, yeah, OK, 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 fine, I'll give you I'll give you my well, demo tape. You give me your demo tape.
1: Right. And what's amazing, not only that we ended up liking each other's bands, but that we both listened to them. Like, I, I don't know how many tapes I got where I just never even bothered putting it on. That's the truth. No, it's, but, it's all of them is the answer. Right. <laughs> but for some reason, I put yours on and I was like, holy shit. Like, I actually liked not like the whole record.
0: Well, I think and that uh, I had had this experience with this lunatic, uh, Fred Kornog, who goes by the name East River Pipe, where he had, uh, I don't know, read about a demo tape. There used to be a magazine. I forget what it was called maybe mcpadden you know they, they used to like I'm review sorry. demo tapes was it jim testa
1: do you know that guy yeah i know, I know jim him. Testa. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah yeah i think I'm he am facebook had a, friends with him yeah right and i think he had a magazine where he like would review demo yeah, tapes for so sure. he reviewed my demo uh, one of these all about chatter trace allergic lovers uh demo tapes and this guy fred cornog uh, sent me a letter saying hey i read about your band uh it sounds like i'd like your music can you please send me a cassette tape And he and I think we were selling our stupid demo tapes. And it was like, here's five bucks, but there was no money in the envelope. Or no, there was money, but he hadn't put his return address on the envelope. So I had no, the guy sent me like five bucks, but I had nowhere to send this fucking cassette tape to. And then like three weeks later, I got another letter from him saying, I think I forgot to put my return address
2: on the original (laughs) thing. Wow.
0: And so I sent him the demo and he wrote me back. And, you know, this this is all pre-internet, man. This was the Stone Age. And then uh, a couple weeks later, I got another letter saying, I love your demo tape. I want to pay for another one. And instead, I said, I I sent him back. I sent him back a second demo tape. I sent him his money back. I did this thing. Everything about this was stupid of me. I was like, this is the dumbest thing I'm ever going to do. But I said, I don't want your money. I, I think I had found out that he made music, too. And I said, send me your demo tape. And so he sent me his demo tape. And I listened to it. And I couldn't believe how great it was. And I was like, wow. I, I'm so glad I said this, and so the same thing happened with Mike, but even more so because Mike gave me this Ruth Ruth demo, and I just thought like, oh my God, I need to see that this is like the best band I've ever heard um and 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 listeners, you may know you may not know the name of this band. I'll play a little clip of it oh boy uh, in the post, but maybe their most famous song is this song uninvited so
2: You Know Uninvited. I right? did, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a fan of uh, Ruth Ruth. I, um, first all, I want wow. to say, you know, working in the uh copy shop was the like archetypal 90s guy in a band job.
1: Yes, yeah. you should think
2: of Mac from Super Chunk and the song Slack Motherfucker about working at Kiko's <laughs> in Chapel Hill, um, and also the whole zine thing and everything. Um, no, I knew Ruth Ruth from K Rock in Los Angeles. Um, oh yeah, Uninvited was on the radio all the time there, and I, I liked it. And I yeah. think I saw your video on uh. Super Rock with Jackie Ferry, which was the MTV uh, Saturday Night Rock show that replaced Headbangers Ball for a couple of weeks.
1: Oh, wow. I only knew that we got on 120 Minutes a couple of times. Yeah, I think you made
2: Super Rock. Super
0: Rock. (laughs) Wow. Did you ever get Uh, another video on MTV, Mike?
1: No. We only made, I think we only made one. We never made another for that record. And then for the Epitaph thing, we made the worst video of all time for Jerome. Hmm. And, uh, that never saw the light of day. Like, I don't even think it got sent to like, try to get it on TV.
0: Yeah. They followed up their, their first album with, uh, an EP called the little death and it was released on Epitaph. And I think that's their finest moment uh, in my yeah. uh, humble opinion. Yeah. Me how, too. how long is that EP?
1: It's, uh, I think it's 18 minutes and one second.
0: It's the best 18 minutes of. Because
1: uh, <laughs> it rock says rock rock it on the spine. Here. Oh, does it? It says like six songs in 18 minutes or in one second, I think.
0: So, but before <clears throat> Ruth Ruth, you and your partner, uh, Chris Kennedy, who's the lead singer and songwriter yeah. of Ruth Ruth, Mike is a guitar god, by the way. Uh, you had been in a band with him called Janata, which was much more. Uh, Not not classic rock, but bluesy.
1: And how would you describe Jannina? Directionless. (laughs) I mean, honestly, (laughs) it was like uh, Chris is a guy who who writes in a million different uh, genres. So like when I met him, he was writing complete pop. And he got like he got his uh, deal with BMI off of some songs that were like, like complete radio pop kind of songs. And then uh, his guitar player quit and I joined the band with him and all I had been playing was like blues and classic rock stuff. And then he just changed his writing. He just started writing in that direction. So I think we even got the record deal based on the pop songs, but then it ended up being like a, like a, you know, late eighties blues rock record. So for did any or worse. of those
0: did any of those pop songs make it
1: onto that album? Yeah, uh, Love in the Shadows. Uh, oh, and maybe there was another song called October 33rd. I can't remember if it's on the record or not.
0: Uh, Look at this guy! Look at this guy with so many
1: musical accomplishments
0: and albums to his name. He doesn't even know what fucking songs made the albums or not.
1: That's yeah, generally a rock can't, star. I, I don't think it's You're on it. it. I think Chris put out uh, like a, a self-pressed vinyl copy of this like five song EP before I'd ever met him. And that song was on there. I don't think we recorded it for the Janata record though. But anyway, that band, yeah, it was like, it leaned towards blues rock. And certainly like our live show was blues rock. Um, and we toured with like all the like, classic rock bands and blues people. And who'd you tour with uh, a lot? Well, we did a lot of like one nighter stuff, but the tours right. we did like a month with the kinks Wow, was, well, Jesus. This I mean, that's top of the food chain. We toured with uh, Graham Parker. Well, what whoa, 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 Hello, what,
2: what album what
0: album was the Kinks were the Kinks touring for? UK or, or, Jive. Yeah.
1: It was well, is nine, that is 1990? that the one with Come Dancing? No. no that's that's like after three. Yeah. Oh. At, way after. Did they, no, no, they have pre- pre- a single on that? <laughs> no. Uh I don't remember. I only remember the cover was like a suit. Um like a suit on a rack kind of thing. But um, yeah, it was UK jive and it was a college tour and it was about a month. And then we toured with uh, Grant Parker, with Salsa Johnny, with Edie Brickell, Wow. With uh, Delamitri for like a month. Delamitri. Now that's yeah.
0: great. Yeah. And that guy, that, that, that's not, that's a, not the guy's name, right? Delamitri is like the name. I of don't the even band. know. Not, Isn't it the band? That's Delamitri? what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. But, that, I think, but that's but the guy like the singer songwriter his name is not Delamitri. That's like, it's like the, I don't think so. That's not a person. I don't
1: know name, if I ever like. met them. Like we were literally with them for <laughs> <Right>. a month. <laughs> I, I don't know if I ever said hi.
2: Um, and this was I before love, their hit song and everything the "Roll the Me" song. I think it was that tour. Oh, so that was that was the place to be. Yeah.
1: But yeah, and yeah, by was, the way, was, uh, yeah, go ahead. What uh, oh, I'm trying to think. And then we did like one off show. Like our big one off show was we played the. Clapton and Steve Ray Vaughn's show where Steve Ray died at. Jesus. And, uh, that, that was like the largest, not the largest crowd, but like the biggest show we ever got. What do you they mean he died at? Wasn't he, didn't he die in a, in a, a helicopter crash? Helicopter crash after the concert. Leaving the show. Yeah. So it was two nights, and on the second night, they were flying from uh, the ski, what's that place called, Alpine Valley, to uh, Chicago, and they crashed. Wow. Yeah, yeah.
2: Now uh, I ask about the classic rock stuff because my wife's uh, uncle is Neil Dowdy, the founding keyboard player, the founding member of REO Speedwagon. Oh wow! wow. He's still going, and uh, I mean they're not touring now, but uh, yeah, you know we see them uh, throughout the Midwest every summer. We go to various like uh, rib fests and things like that.
1: Right, right.
2: And they're just great. I mean, and and they're usually with like Journey or
1: Sticks or. And those bands are
2: great because, you know, it's like a Broadway show. They're such pros. Yeah. And they put on such a great show.
1: I don't think I've ever seen them, R.E.O. Speedwagon. Well, uh, because I, that's I after, that, that's not the music that you grew up listening to, right, Mike? I mean, no. li- Mike Lustig. Um, no, you know? I would have said I hated R.E.O. Speedwagon back when they were on MTV, but the truth was, those live videos I really liked. I liked that guitar player. And the, oh yeah uh, Gary uh,
2: uh, Richrath and and those first records are like Zeppelin they're like uh, yeah. and, and Neil Dowdy's like prog uh, you know he has a lot of like uh, prog flights of fancy on the
1: right and that's where and that's the stuff I never got I mean I liked yeah. King Crimson is about as prog as I would no. get um,
2: you like King Crimson eh
1: you got it that's on why
2: you? I can't even know where my tattoo is Jesus and we can't anyway, see like, get King, closer can't to see stand up you son of a bitch
1: is Here it the? Oh uh, yeah, there you go.
2: There he is.
1: You gotta put that. You gotta put the COVID swab in his nose. as next That's right. <laughs> it's <laughs> terrifying.
0: But, but McPadden, I don't actually even well. I know you were into like, Kiss and, um, yeah, Led uh, up? But but the thing I think the, the thing that's different about Mike Lustig, who I think is even younger than you, is that he had these older brothers who were and and you have an older brother who was like a rock critic, right?
1: Yes.
0: So you got so, exposed yeah. to all this
1: yeah, so Woodstock
0: I, era stuff.
1: Yeah, because they grew up, you know, they graduated high school in, I guess, like 78, 79. So there, I got the whole 70s, you know, Jackson Brown, Doobie Brothers, right. they were listening to all that. But then Jay, in, in particular, back then was listening to The Clash and Elvis Costello and, um, but also like Velvet Underground and I don't know. And he also, he, somehow the, the Rolling Stone record guide books, do you remember those yeah, back books? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Obsessive. Like yeah. I lived out of that book, yeah. which, you know, leaned heavily on that kind of music. So anything that got a five-star record, I'd try to find at record store and buy. Um, so I ended up with a lot of that stuff that's now, you know, the classics.
0: Well, who, so, but who were your guitar heroes growing up and what made you decide to pick up a guitar and become one yourself?
1: Bruce. I mean, uh, yeah. um, Bruce Warnsson, you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in particular, like the, just the guitar solos on uh, Jungle Land and Prove It All Night and stuff like that really was what motivated me. Oh, but then, but, but at some point you got into like Clapton
0: and Hendrix.
1: Yeah. So then when I was, uh, like I took guitar lessons, uh, in like locally and like would try to play and I sucked and the, but the teachers were a nightmare and they want me to read sheet music and do all that stuff that kids hate. And then finally I convinced, oh, actually this is through a Woodstock related thing. So Yorma Kalkinen. Who's the, right. the guitar player in Jefferson Airplane? Oh, time out. Yeah, is yeah. he the guy who's wearing the
0: swastika necklace? Yes,
1: which I never okay. noticed before because that, that footage is new in the director's cut. I watched Woodstock a million times, but the director's cut is new to me. But that guy, who's also the main guy in Hot Tuna, um, which is I don't Ben, I don't even do you know like the music of that like Hot Tuna and what about, about Hot, Hot Fucking tuna? tuna? Hot Fucking. That's uh, uh, the
2: electric version. Yeah.
0: I'll tell you about these some of these bands like Canned Heat and Hot Tuna. I know them primarily because I used to get the the first the first couple of albums I bought and by maybe the first ten albums I bought over the, over a couple year period when I was really young like I think like ten or eleven or nine maybe um, were I bought them at Alexander's. Uh, the sure. department store in King's Plaza which had it which had a, a record department um it was like a it was like a, a pretty big room within alexanders uh, alexanders was sort of like the rival to macy's that i i i don't know when alexanders went out of business but they did at some point but i used to i used to get dragged there by my mom or my grandmother who were always trying to buy me clothes and things which was fine but i always wanted to go to The record section, and I would just look at all the album covers, and they had a huge long wall that were all Beatles albums. And so every time we went there, which felt like weekly to me, like I would get to pick out another Beatles album to buy, and they were all like four dollars and forty-four cents, and sometimes they were like five dollars and fifty-five cents. But if you got there on a on a good day, there it was the four forty-four time of year. And so I would I would pick another Beatles album. But then I would wander around and look at all these other bands. And so Little Feet, Canned Heat, all these other bands, you know, uh, what was that Todd Rundgren thing? Utopia?
2: Is Utopia. Yeah. Yeah. The Naz before
0: that. The Naz, that. Steely Dan. Like the, the the thing that I mostly knew about those bands was just like their album covers and that they were bands. I was like, okay.
2: Right.
0: You know, these, these guys must be huge.
2: But you one listen the- to- I, I listened to all that shit. I mean, I didn't have older brothers, I had older cousins though, in the seventies.
0: I don't, I didn't listen to any of that. What I realized watching Woodstock this week was like so much of these bands, I don't know a fucking thing about, but they just always were like a presence, you know, I was like, okay. Like, I don't know the difference between canned heat and little feet. To me, they're like the same fucking thing.
1: totally different. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I personally, I love little feet and I don't like Canned Heat all that much, but, uh, Mm -hmm. I'll finish my thing about Yorma. Uh, yeah. So uh, I guess around like when I started smoking pot, which was probably like seventh, eighth grade, I started listening to more like hippie music because all my friends kind of lean that way, who were all kid- young kids who were smoking pot. So I started learning those bands, and that's probably where, how I heard you know Hot Tuna because I don't think my brothers were listening to that. Uh, and by 10th grade, uh, I saw that at the new school, Yorma was teaching. So I got super excited about that and I went to, he had auditioned for his class. And I didn't know enough to know that it was like an advanced finger-picking class and I had no idea how to finger-pick. <laughs> uh, so I went and auditioned and played for these guys at the school and they were like, well, you're not gonna make his class, but we have a class that would be good for you. And so they put me in to this uh, either beginner or intermediate, whatever, like guitar class. And the teacher of that class became like my mentor. His name is Stuart Ziff. He's a great, like, session player. And he was super into blues music, so he's the one who got me going on all that. He, I mean, and all this, oh, like, to learn guitar, it was really about Albert King and B.B. King and all that stuff. Um, so that's how that all happened.
2: So you, guys you build that foundation, you can go anywhere, so.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a good place to start. But that was really his, like, first love was that kind of music and right. And he was just a great guy at DSI. So a... my,
0: my parents met at a guitar class at Brooklyn College.
1: Oh. Uh,
0: and neither one of them can play like a single chord. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but then in later, in, well, in early years for me, later years for them, I took a guitar class on Saturday mornings at Brooklyn College. Um, and the first song, they ta- and maybe the only song they ever taught me how to play that I knew how to play was that song, Freight Train. You know that Freight Past Train, seasons? Freight Train, going oh. my way. Whatever that fucking song is. I you know what it, I'm talking I was about? was Peace like Train. The, no, not Peace Train. But do you know Freight Train? It's like this, um, <laughs> some black woman who was like a folk singer and, 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 uh... Odetta? God, like, damn right. uh, now I'm going to... Joan oh, maybe it was Odetta. Trading.
2: Yeah, it was, it was Joan armstrong Oh, it was Odetta. It, it was Odetta. It might have been Odetta, It was Odetta, Odetta. Yeah. It was Odetta yeah. for sure. Yeah.
0: You don't know that Odetta song, Mike Lustig? Freight no. Train?
1: Although, actually, uh-huh. I picture... Are you sure? Are you talking about uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp? Yeah, maybe. Oh, no, but she yeah. did a song that uh, something about a train, getting on a train. That's more
0: likely if it's like yeah. a
2: bluesy, yeah, you know, thing.
0: Uh, let me see if I can get any of these to play here. Oh, oh yeah, Elizabeth Cotton. Oh. Yeah. Can you guys hear this? Yeah. yeah.
1: Train. They won't know route there you go. I know. Her. I've seen her in because uh, she's, she's like a, she's a finger picker. So I, I've, you goddamn right. Si- you. I've last couple of years I've actually been trying to learn it. Finally, and uh, finger picking. Yeah, uh, not freight train. Wow. Just no, not freight train. But I think Dude, I've, I think a, I've watched a videos of, of her uh, yeah. in that quest. Do
2: you remember the Kenny Rogers guitar lessons uh, ad before he had like hit songs? No. Yeah, it was like learn guitar from Kenny Rogers. And, and he would say, you can, you can, you can learn quick picking, fun strumming. I'll send you the video. It's on YouTube. Did you watch
0: all five Gambler movies this past weekend, Mike? McCann?
2: I uh, tried to. I don't think I had that network. I, I, don't, I don't either. I attempted to. <laughs> yeah. I thank you for the hot tip. So uh, should we talk about the movie? Yeah, we really should. We really should. Um, so this
0: version. Oh, well, I was going to ask both of you. Do you remember seeing uh, seeing Woodstock in
2: the 70s or any time? Well, do you remember the first time you saw any or all of it? First time I saw it was on PBS. Huh. And I'm thinking it might have been 1982, which I'll still count as the 70s. Sure, why not?
1: I'm guessing the first time I saw it was like renting it on VHS. Probably in the early 80s or something.
0: Well, I don't know if I saw all of it in the 70s, but I do know, I believe, I have to believe that my introduction to Woodstock the movie was actually through a movie that I know I saw in the 70s. And that was The Omega Man with Charlton Heston, which has this famous sequence. Well, I don't
2: know if it's famous. <laughs> to us. Yeah, famous for our in
0: purposes. my mind, <laughs> for our where he walks into—you know—he's the last man on Earth, right? And vampires have taken over, and uh, um, it literally is based on a Richard Matheson book and movie called *The Last Man on Earth*. Uh, uh, but he walks into a movie theater, and uh, Woodstock is playing. Which I always thought was great and haunting, but but in thinking about it this week, I'm like, what what is the concept? Like, how is that movie playing in that movie theater? Like, there's nobody else around. No, he, don't see. He runs it for. Oh, himself. Oh, he runs it for himself. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. It's probably just the first showing of it, and it just never stops.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. <It's> still going. <laughs> well, how long is the is the was the theatrical release? About two and a half hours I think
1: at least oh yeah. that's
0: it because I think yeah. I
1: think I read yeah. the Wikipedia page and it said the director's cut was only an extra like 45 minutes so
0: well then that's three so then because so the director's cut hours. is three hours and 45 minutes so then yeah wait I've got Vincent Camby's
2: review uh, which I guess should also say the running time I say Woodstock got a lot of really good reviews and I agree I think it's a great movie as a movie yeah yeah. As a documentary.
0: I I agree. And I, and I, yeah, and I, I fought it. Terrific. I'll just say, as we say, let's say our general thoughts, yeah. like I, yeah. I fought this every step of the way, but a little over halfway through right after inter fucking mission, I sort of gave up and was like, just gave into it and really was like, damn, like these were great musicians some great songs and this seems like a fun time and it seems like a good, and it's a good movie. Yeah. No, the original was 184 minutes. So it was a little over three hours. So you're right. It is only like 40 yeah. minutes longer. The director's cut.
1: I don't know. I've got, I don't know if I think it's a good movie. Like I was, I said to Ben, like when he first brought up this idea, and I think originally we were supposed to do some like comedy or something when you're talking about having me on, then it switched to Woodstock, but my whole memory of it, and I, again, it's all about like playing guitar and everything, but like I try to learn the solo from going home, right? The 10 mm-hmm. years after tune, and sure. Uh, so I'd play it over and over, and the split screen stuff would drive me out of my mind, or, <laughs> or like the shot. why because you were trying to look at his fingers and you couldn't, yeah, yeah, or like the shots of Hendrix, it goes on and on where it's just his face, and you're like, show the guitar, yeah. like, it would drive me insane. So, well, trying uh,
0: to watch this thing on VHS in the 80s on a 4x3 TV, I mean, I don't... I'm, I don't think that there's a, maybe there is. I don't, I have, uh, I have, didn't, I did barely any research about the sort of meta information about Woodstock and the different versions, but I don't know that there was a pan and scan version that got shown on T. I would assume that, that the split screen stuff is so crucial to the whole aesthetic that it never, that even when it aired on PBS, you were getting. That's what I recall was that
2: yeah. yeah. it was somehow letterboxed even back then. So you really probably couldn't see anything <laughs> unless you had like a, the biggest. You know, yeah. old tube TV you could get.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, but I, I I do think that I do think that as a document of Woodstock, yeah. uh, I think it's I think it's great. I think like all the sort of non musical stuff, is, yeah, is pretty great. Yeah. like you got a lot of really good interviews.
2: Uh, the with town people. people are great. I mean, all those. Yeah, no, I mean that, that's what stuff. I I think um, divorced of the music. Uh, like, whatever you think about it, it's. I think it's a great, you know, you are there document, let's plunge you into the experience. And I think that split screen really adds to the overwhelm of everything. Uh, you know, the entire, the mass of humanity, the mass of music, the mass of the moment. Yeah. And
1: I think probably, I, I would guess when they made it, like more than, you know, any other music film, it had to be a, like, you feel like you're there movie. Because right. everyone read about it in the papers, and then you're going to the movie yeah. and you... You want to experience it, which is, you know, they probably wanted to make it as trippy as possible, you know, visually right. and really make you feel like you're immersed in it. Yeah.
0: And Vincent that. Camby was not, was not down with all of that sort of split screen stuff, but he did, he did like the movie but ultimately, despite itself, despite it's whatever.
2: Um, and I would say it was topped the following year in terms of you are there by Gimme Shelter which is actually my favorite yeah. documentary of all time and uh but that's a bad trip that's yeah. the definitive bad trip yeah yeah it's also maybe my favorite horrible.
0: <laughs> yeah it's great and I actually just watched that a couple weeks ago because we showed it at Cinematech um recently in our online view from home series and uh yeah that's another great movie um with with tons of great music uh the Stones footage. Honestly, the Stones footage, and I, is it at the Garden? I don't know where they are at the beginning yeah, of garden. the Garden. At
2: the
0: That's in just, that like, if you ever want to understand, and, and I think it, I think Woodstock is helpful for me in the same way to sort of like, finally sort of understand what the hype was all about with some of these bands that were so overhyped From the time I knew their names until now, that it's hard to like sort of see past that and figure out, wait, was this band any good? And why did everyone love this band so much? Like, why were these the popular bands? And you watch that Stones footage from Gimme Shelter, especially the Madison Square Garden stuff. And you're like, oh, okay, I got it. I got it now. You know, because by the time the Stones, by the time I was eligible to see the Stones, it was, you know, a whole other fucking thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was over.
0: Yeah, McPadden. You ever seen the Stones
2: live? No, I haven't, and I would love to. Except that, like, for shitty seats, it's like five hundred bucks now. And they're you know the Stones in today. They're not the yeah. Stones in yeah you know get your yayas out era. McPadden, you ever see the yes. Who live? I have not. I've not seen any of the big classic
0: rock bands. I saw the Who no. at least once. I might have seen them twice. Did but you really? I saw them at. I saw them at uh, Shea Stadium. Is that where they played? Uh,
2: where, yeah. where, where
0: did they play? Oh, did the with cl- the Clash. The Clash? Yeah. That yeah. was the,
2: the Clash, Clash. that was Shea Stadium. Shea Stadium. I was at that too. And David Johansson.
1: Yeah. Man. Yes. Yeah.
0: And I was so even at the time. Well, especially at the time, I was much more into David Joe and the Clash than I was the Who. Like going into the show, I was like, right. You know, I I was I was obsessed with the David Johansson stuff and uh, and and the Clash, the Who. You know, I was okay. That's, I was, I, I was going to get into this when we get into the who, and maybe we should, let's save that. We're going to go through. You want to do it chronologically? Yeah, I think so. we should. Okay. Um, but this movie starts with this stupid, and I don't know if this is the director's cut or this was the original too. that stupid MPAA, like rated R. And then that bursts yeah. into
2: flames. No, that's the director's cut.
0: That's sure. just the director's yeah, cut. Yeah, yeah. And then his inter fucking mission also just the director's cut.
1: I don't know. Like,
0: those dumb meta know. things, yeah. those are my the most irritating parts of the movie to me is that that that, that uh, the, the letter R, burning, bursting into flames, and then intermission <laughs> being called inter-fucking mission. Which also, was this director's cut released into theaters? Was there an actual intermission built into screenings of this director's cut? I didn't even know. I thought it was just like a Blu-ray only thing. I have no idea. They, am I, am I, am I,
2: to, I bet it was, Yeah. yeah. I yeah. think
1: it was really briefly. It, I, it coincided with like whatever the 40th anniversary or the whichever anniversary when that was released. I think,
2: yeah. I mean, it was like when, yeah, it was like 25th, I think. Uh, and then I got like the, some crazy Blu-ray 10 years after that in like 2004, right. not a Blu-ray a DVD at that point.
0: I'm going to, I want just going to warn you guys in advance that I, in, in, now that I'm in my fifties, I feel like it's time for me and the, these podcasts have been a way to do it. I'm gonna now just ask all the questions that I've spent fifty years not asking, and just thinking. Well, everyone else knows, so I'm just gonna. All right, fantastic. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs>
0: but but uh, but I'm almost getting to my first one of those questions. But the but right off the bat, I feel like we realize that we're in very different times and this was sort of the most uh, revelatory thing about watching the movie was how how different things were. You know, I always thought of. The 60s and the 70s is this very turbulent time in American politics and, you know, the battle between the hippies and the establishment and Nixon and all and Vietnam War and all that stuff. And it, and it was and, I, you know, my parents were in the middle of that shit and, and you know, they were in the peace loving hippie activist roles, although they were not at Woodstock. They were not fans of any of this music. Well, some of this music, but not like not the main stars. But um. But it's amazing to me throughout this movie how civil all the sort of townies and farmers and the old much older generation are, not only civil but but downright um, friendly towards and have almost nothing but positive things and
2: encouraging. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. You know, which I I think maybe because I'm more I've I've spent more time recently and then through my life watching Gimme Shelter and, and. you know, and seeing that sort of the ugly side of what happened uh, in that generation, or at least at that concert. But it's, you know, and I, I guess that it's true that Woodstock has always had the reputation of being this great love-in, great festival, you know, like no, nothing bad happened. But somehow I didn't actually believe it. But watching this movie this week, I'm like, oh, yeah, it really was. Like it was, you know, pretty drama-free. And, and it's amazing how civil... The, the different sort of
1: generations were towards each other. Well, um, they, they talked about, uh, and this is the first, I'll bring it up that other movie. I was, that was, uh, I had mentioned yeah. this other Woodstock documentary that came out a few years ago. Um, they talked, there were other like big festivals that had happened that summer. Cause you know, it all started with Monterey, which was two years before Woodstock but then the summer of 69 there was like there was one in Miami there was one in Atlanta I think uh, Atlantic City was I think the weekend before Woodstock Yeah um,
2: well, that was huge right that Atlantic yeah, City one was, was like, like massive 100, like
1: 100,000 yeah. people or something
2: yeah.
1: uh, a lot of the same bands like I think Joe right, Cocker right. like went straight from there to Woodstock or something But uh they talked about that in this other film about Woodstock and they said that there were a lot of fights at these other festivals and a lot of problems. And the guys who were running Woodstock said, you know, why do we think that is? And, and the first reaction was, we got to get tons of cops here and tons of security. And then they realized that that's not going to do it. And they said, we have to make this a place where no one wants to hurt each other. So that's how they ended up hiring like wavy gravy and the hog farm people. And they were supposed to be security, but they really just went around being like, Goofy and like and helping people, but not policing them, and uh, they just set the tone for like this is there's no space for that kind of stuff here. And it, amazingly, it worked.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so anyway, so it starts off uh, and the first, and I'm, and by the way, I'm gonna pull up, I'm gonna start sharing my screen because I pulled up a copy of the movie, and I thought we could reference actual stuff to remind ourselves of some stuff if we need to yeah this dude so this starts with this old guy and and one of the first things he says is nobody can complain about these kids and we hear a lot of that stuff throughout um but anyway the then the first song that we get is uh we don't see csn and i don't even know is there long time gone? Is that a live thing from Woodstock or that's just like an album? Classic? That sounds like that's it's the, off
1: the album. Yeah. That's the studio.
0: What is that song about? Here's one of
2: my questions. No idea. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. I want to chime in about the old folks and everything. Yeah. Do it. personal connection to Woodstock. So, uh, my father was, uh, well, he was back. He was, yeah, he was back from Vietnam when Woodstock happened. Uh, but, uh, so my my mother's family, um, she's the oldest, it was two, two families that grew up in one house. So it was 10 cousins that grew up like siblings and she's the oldest. So of them, the eight younger ones were all hippies by the time I got there. So the people who I really had fun with, the, my aunts and uncles were hippies. My father's family were all Goldwater Republicans who then Nixon Republicans. And he was a Green Beret who was fighting in Vietnam during the Tet Offensive. And my father's mother, at the time of Woodstock, lived in Middletown, New York, which is right nearby. Oh, yeah. Right. So uh, my Uncle Billy, who was my uh, mother's brother, was a, a pretty well-connected pot dealer in Brooklyn. So he was up in Woodstock. He was not going to miss this opportunity. So he would always go on about the time of his life was at Woodstock. And then my father's family, like I remember my cousin, who was a year older than me, saying, they chopped up cabins for firewood, like 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 I was supposed to react to that. Like he was saying, they chopped up hippies for firewood. You know, like they chopped up priests and nuns for firewood. And uh, so I got I got I was raised with the blasts of both, and I uh, you know I listened to the album a lot because as a kid because that's what my uncles were listening to. And um, so I uh, I definitely. I got a taste of uh, this old fella here and then I got a taste of the people who were rather upset when they were packing their car as a kid. So, Well, this guy, look at his outfit. It's just spectacular.
0: I mean, he he's really like is all special, special. Yeah. He's all dressed up for, for, I guess, square dancing,
2: maybe. The rodeo. The
0: yeah. rodeo, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, then we get Long Time Gone and we get a bunch of, uh, I guess what we're watching uh, over Long Time Gone is them setting up uh, for you know the 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 venue, so to speak. Um, and then there's this dude from ABC News who's bothering everyone with his interviews, including the, what's this guy's name? Michael
2: Lang is the, is yeah. the main yeah. organizer. Yeah.
0: Politics involved. You with the city?
2: Yeah. He doesn't. I'm he look, freaked out by how much hippies smoke cigarettes. When yeah. you see like old footage, they're always like puffing Marlboros. They're, but that looks like a joint that he's got. That's a joint. Point. But yeah. but throughout this, you see him sm- just smoking cigarettes all the time. This Michael Lang
0: looks like somebody who would be. He looks like one of the extras in one of those Italian uh, road warrior ripoffs. You know. Yeah, like. that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I think his real name is Umberto something or other. Yeah. Um. So then. Um, I don't know if this film. I, I I again. I didn't do research. I don't know if they were wandering around. There were twelve cameramen on this shoot, and I don't know if they were shooting on thirty-five or they were shooting in sixteen. But it's interesting to me that when they're not doing all this split-screen stuff, that like this film is in cinemascope aspect right. ratio. But a lot of it, when they're not do when they're not getting fancy and psychedelic and throwing multiple images at you, it's really just like a regular sort of flat. 16 by 9 within that scope frame so you know on t even on even on a big modern hd tv it's a little bit annoying in that uh, you know maybe half this movie you're only getting an image and maybe half of your screen um and i don't know if that I, it makes me think that, that they shot this in 16 and they couldn't blow these images up anymore without them getting really really grainy and ugly looking um uh, Anyway, that's about as film school as I'll get with this movie. <laughs> I just was watching, um, what is that thing on Netflix these days? Uh, uh, Queen's Gambit. Oh, yeah. And it's one of those period things where they,
1: where they, they went and got no the old-style beer cans that looked much yeah. more like I noticed cans. that in that show, too. Yeah. They had two cans of Budweiser in it. And they're the pull tabs.
2: They look like they're steel, those old cans. Remember, ha, ha, sitting pretty... All together in Schaefer City. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So, okay, so we're hearing the first Canned Heat song
2: over this sort of
0: uh, montage of people arriving on the scene and setting stuff up. And this is that going up the country song, which, again, what is this song about? Is this about Vietnam or something? It's about going
2: up the country. I think it's about going camping. Oh, okay. That makes sense. uh, But now... Now, Canned Heat fascinates me because, like King Harvest, they're being... Like these huge, like burly biker-looking dudes, yeah. and then uh, it doesn't. The music doesn't match the image of the band. I mean, they do. You know, they get into some pretty heavy blues here, but uh, but that's what, what I, that's I've always what wanted. I, wanted it. I want them to sound like Steppenwolf, and they really don't.
1: Yeah, I never understood Kenny. i like
0: well, thank well. Okay, I can't understand them because to me. I can't reconcile this song, which to me is their only hit, the only song of theirs that I remember. There
1: really was know. another classic rock radio one that was on all the time. It was uh, Let's Work Together, right? It was the,
2: uh, let's no, work think... together. Yeah, 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 let's work together. I can't remember. I think that's what it was.
0: Um, but my but my question is, did they have more than one lead singer? Because we get to see yeah. Canned Heat later on, and the guy yeah. who's singing that song, which is a much bluesier, sort of more hard and song... Oh, so they did have more than one
2: lead singer. They scene. did. The bear was the guy with the real. It was the big bear guy with the with the high voice, and then uh, they had another singer too. So.
1: I get the feeling the whole thing with Can't Heat was their live show. Because so I've read a few different times of people saying, like, talking about shows at like the Fillmore East and being like Can't Heat would always like steal the show, and so and you don't get that in this movie. Like they don't do no. anything where that makes sense to me, but. I think that was their rep was they're a great live band
0: well that brings me to another sort of general question that I had for both of you do either one of you enjoy these outdoor music festivals?
1: no going? yeah no not I've gone to a couple that I guess I've enjoyed I don't know I I would never like seek it out intentionally because it's an outdoor festival It's, it's just all the bands that are playing I hate them and
0: I've been to many more of them than I should have. I never should have gone to any of them. But one of the things that this, you know, one of the, the thing about this movie and I guess it's probably especially the director's cut is there's a lot of stuff going on in between each one of these songs. Like we get, we, we, this, this film is music free for about almost half of its running time. I would guess maybe not that much, but there's a lot of downtime. And at first I was kind of annoyed and then I was like, well, this is actually a much more accurate representation of what it's what it is to be at one of these outdoor things. Because my memories of being at outdoor music festivals, everything from Summerfest in Milwaukee back through the ages to like several different Amnesty International things that I got suckered into going to see, is that. I remember spending most of my time wondering when is the next fucking band going to hit the stage? Like, it seems like it's been forever since we've heard any music. Uh, and they're just constantly like setting up equipment and testing stuff. And, and then as soon as a band hit the stage, almost immediately in my head, I I would be like, when is this band getting the fuck off the stage? (laughs) (laughs) It was constantly like, when's the music coming? When's the music going to stop? Uh, because that's, the, to me, it's like even in the best of circumstances, you're going to you're, you're an individual person's maybe there for like two or three of the like 10 to 12 act you're going to see on a given day. And so you're suffering through so much shit. Uh, the
2: amnesty stuff, especially, man, I was the like, weird thing to me is seeing shit in the daylight. So yep. the last one of these I went to was the vice used to do intonation. In Chicago. So this is like the the ultimate dream lineup come true. Or these two. So it's Rocky Erickson's playing for the first time out of out of uh, Texas in 25 years. Mm-hmm. And then fucking Blue Cheer reunited. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it was like Rocky Erickson played at like two in the afternoon and then Blue Cheer played at four. And it's like, it's hot and it's fucking sunny. I was like, this is uh, kind of shitty. But I mean, you know, I was yeah. there. It was great. You know, it yeah.
0: Well, the the and the other thing about these outdoor festivals is that just because your band has finally hit the stage, that doesn't mean that that's the same band that 80% of the rest of the people are there to see. And so even when your band shows up on stage and you're like right on, you can't even pay attention to them because nobody else around mm-hmm. you is. And they're all fucking yelling at each other and drinking beers and getting up and moving around <laughs> and stuff. It's like, you know, I, I just, I, I hate them.
2: I also find that it dwarfs... The, uh, the, the, how do I want to say this? Uh, it just, it removes the power of a lot of it for me to see them. Like they they just, they look smaller and it feels smaller to me.
0: Well, especially like, so when I would see like Springsteen do like these 45 minute sets at the Amnesty shows, you know, it was sort of all climax, but none of the buildup and you realize it's not as much fun seeing Jungle Land after you've only seen two other Springsteen songs uh, as it is seeing Jungle Land after three hours of other stuff, you know, there isn't that buildup because everything's truncated. So like when you get to see Sly and the Family Stone do their shit uh, at the end of this movie, my only thought is like well what else you know how long were they on stage and how how much stuff did they do before they I don't think those rules higher?
1: those rules did not apply at Woodstock. I think bands did full sets.
0: Did they? But yeah. what Oh yeah. But here's my I was, my other I was looking at
1: a, at uh some page on the internet talking about uh other cuts that have been released and songs that weren't in the initial movie and it lists uh it lists the songs and the track times so it says like you know credence clear there's a lot of bands you know obviously that aren't in the movie but so it's credence and whoever and then it lists the grateful dead uh, doing turn on your love light and it's like 38 minutes to <laughs> just that one song should be like a five minute song but uh yeah. yeah I think they did full sets and they ran way over cause I think the who played from like 3am to 6am what wow yeah damn well, that well, they was probably did all of Tommy, right? They ended with the sun coming up. But like, did they did they do the whole Tommy album? Uh I think so. They used to like that was just typical. I mean, t- yeah, just yeah. because that of the year, I would guess they did. Yeah. Well, that was my
0: other question. Is like how long like what what were these bands doing all year? Like what was it what was a tour back then for these bands? Like I don't the only thing I know of is these like these these multiple act bills that would tour the country together. And it, and it, it, those also seemed like these sort of mini indoor music festivals where there'd be like, you know, like 10 different Motown bands and they'd each seem to me would play, play like two or three songs and then right. move on to the next one.
2: Oh, yeah, but that's like those rock and roll review shows. Yeah, yeah,
0: but were rock bands playing longer sets in clubs and... Uh, you know, at, at in the in the late '60s. I mean, I understand in the early '60s, like the Beatles would be at the fucking Cavern Club, and they, you know, they play for, or they'd be in Hamburg and they'd play all night. But when things got more sort of, I don't know, business oriented and became a real industry, what were those? What were the? What what would a canned heat tour or set look like? Where would they play? How long were their sets? That kind of shit.
1: Anybody know? I think it would. I think it, the it would vary hugely city to city. I think that's why it was such a big deal to play New York or play San Francisco because of the you know the Fillmore or whatever. But then they would go to these other towns and they'd end up playing in a high school gym or something.
2: Right, and the but Fillmore we- would just stay open all
1: night. Yeah, and those shows were incredibly long. I mean, the Who talk about like touring with the, when they were opening for Herman's Hermits and they would play you know like three songs.
0: Yeah, um, but then how long would Herman's Hermits play?
2: Like, I can't imagine them
0: playing for more than probably five songs either. or something. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right.
2: Probably. Yeah. 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 A half hour, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And they
1: do something like six shows a day. But uh, mm. but that was you know that's I guess that was like more like '66 or something. By this period, yeah. you know, it's the Dead probably changed a lot of it, and the Airplane was playing all night and the Acid Tests and all that stuff. Yeah.
0: Oh right, the Air, Jefferson Airplane would also play all night.
1: Yeah, films? because they were yeah, also at the, at the Fillmore. Yeah, yeah, they they were in all the early Acid Test stuff, which I can't imagine those being a three song endeavor. You know, that was
0: an all night deal. Do we know why the dead aren't in this movie? I mean, I know there's some famous stories about bands who didn't realize it would be a smart thing to be in this movie. And yeah. so like mountain, right. Howard Stern always, yeah. always talks
2: about Leslie West and mountain. Yeah, and the man. two bands I'd most want to see are credence and mountain. And they're both not in the movie. Yeah.
1: I know. Yeah. A lot of bands turned it down and like, I've only heard Townsend talk about it where he said like, it was pivotal to their career to like making them ride out the seventies, uh, just being in this movie. Um, the, I know the Dead thought they played horribly at Woodstock, so maybe they turned it down just because oh. they thought they weren't good.
0: Yeah, because we do get to see Jerry Garcia early on, sort of backstage, yeah. and Jerry Garcia always seems like a, a really nice guy and an interesting guy. Yeah. I just, but I, you know, the Grateful Dead, as as maybe both of you know, for me, like is a band, I've never been able to comprehend in any way, shape, or form.
1: There's, I was, there's a band where the name and the music. Like I remember hearing about the Grateful Dead <laughs> yeah. like as early as like second, third grade because older, you know, kids, older brothers were listening right. to them. And I always pictured they're going to be like Black Sabbath or something. Right. And uh, see the T-shirts. Yeah. And the, skull. And the first yeah. time I heard them, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It's like, how is this the Grateful Dead?
2: I have made such efforts to get into the dead and it has never taken. First as like a fuck you to like my punk rock friends. I was like, I'm just going to like, I'm going to, I'm going to love this shit. Fuck you and then when i was in a band that was that played you know that was a psychedelic noise band i was like all right I mean, let's go to the mother the, the you know let's go to the motherland and i just it's like pleasant country noodling i don't hear anything beyond that yeah. in that it just it's so dull
1: yeah me too i mean to me the big offense back then and all again all my friends were deadheads but to me it was like bad really bad blues music and i and they right. did all these covers of like and Wolf songs and yeah. whatever, and I'd be like, "You understand the original is like a zillion times better than what they're doing." <laughs> uh, it's just I don't know.
2: And they'd have two drummers, and each guy would have like seventy-five drums, and it, it, it's like they had no percussion in it at all.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's moments. I guess if I really had to pick moments, sure, of course, day, yeah, I could find some.
2: Listen,
0: I watched that long, strange trip thing in its entirety. Me too. Right. And I still, I mean, and you know, like, I think that their story is interesting, I guess. I sure. I think that all the stuff yeah. they went through, but the music itself and the, and the conniptions that their audience goes through <laughs> while,
2: while they're listening to the stuff. I just, I can't now, wrap The weird enough. thing to me about them too, is if you recall in the eighties. Yeah. So like in the seventies, it was like scary older brothers that were into the Grateful Dead. And then the 80s, it came like this rich kid thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, it was those like are rich those are, kids.
1: With that yeah, built that's to last. Mike album. friend, yeah. Yeah, that's. I, well, I started. I went with my friends to see them before that came out. Like, I probably saw The Dead for the first time in like 83, 82. Uh, maybe not 82. Uh, but then I saw some of those shows after that, they had that hit and that was really weird it was the same in, as In the Dark album, the yeah. uh, Touch of Grey yeah all yeah. oh, right In the Dark where yeah. I the to to last yeah. I guess that was after yeah um, but that was gross in the same way that like Born in the USA to me was gross except I, right. I cared about Springsteen I didn't care about the dead but it still looked totally bizarre yeah
0: I think we're up to the part of this movie where uh, we get more townspeople talking And I think this is part where one of the guys says that this is the wildest thing that's happened since the Rose Bowl parade, which I think is (laughs) funny. And then he also, uh, yeah, this guy that we're looking at right now, he talks about the kids are definitely beautiful people, which I don't know, man. I mean, there are some good looking
2: hippies in this movie, but there's a lot of. (laughs) I got to tell you, that was one of my notes. I found it so refreshing Because because, because like for the last 25 years. The only young people who make it on camera are gorgeous. Right. Like no matter what, and this is like we, you know, the lumpy, weird. Yeah. You know, look at that's that guy's a perfect example. <laughs> yeah. As is. Uh, but look, it wow, looks look, like fine. But
0: but they these townspeople,
1: like <laughs> like,
0: they all what? these townspeople can't get enough of these kids. They are just like yeah. she's in love with them.
1: Well, they are free, baby? Yeah. Does that just does that not look like a young divine, like in Multiple Maniacs or something? Sure,
2: yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, the beginning of um, Female Struggle, when yeah, she's yeah. in high school. This guy's great. This is, is this it a relative like of
0: yours, McPen? Yeah, <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was my uh, father's cousin. That uh, they chopped up, they chopped up cabins for firewood i was like eight and he was nine and he was freaking out about it this fucking guy yeah you know, look but yeah no this would be hell on earth to me to be in one of these tents or something this is it would be a, beyond a nightmare oh yeah you, you know, know I like you to, couldn't hear the music
1: or anything i went to a show at the woodstock site uh oh really yeah it was the um the 30th anniversary and the show was donovan lou reed joni mitchell Pete Townsend was who I went really went to see, and uh, there was one other, Richie Havens. And it what bo- was
0: the anniversary that they did a whole like Woodstock?
1: Well, there was tw- the twenty fifth anniversary they did in Sogarties. That was the one I, th- I think with the, Chili Peppers.
2: Yeah, that was where everyone threw uh, mud Green day. That was like the peak, like alt rock right. one, and that went really well. And then they did uh Rapestock ninety nine. Right. Right. Oh, that's what I'm thinking
1: so the show I saw was in ninety eight actually uh it was like the year before, but they did it it was the only time I think they did it on the actual site where this happened and um it was an amazingly comfortable place to be actually, like really, yeah, but it was only you know for that show, there was probably thirty thousand people there there wasn't right. it wasn't completely flooded, so you can move right. around and uh it is a natural kind of sloped amphitheater spot. It's kind of perfect.
0: And this is Yazgar's farm, having, right?
2: Yes, no. Max Yazgar's farm. Oh, and there's Jerry. the, the, there's the man. Slope. So Jerry also, one of my favorite moments in Gimme Shelter is Jerry going, angels are beating up on the musicians. He <laughs> goes, bummer. Then he turns around yeah. and gets on the helicopter and yeah, I like that Jerry appears to be
0: stringing his own guitar. That's one of my favorite yeah. rock star, real rock star moments in this movie. Yeah, fucking Jerry Garcia Mountain stringing his is own that? guitar. Oh, here's my man, Bill Graham, <laughs> yeah. who I, I I know that Mike uh, Mike Lustig has chastised me and, and told me that he's only ever heard good things about Bill Graham, and fair enough, but for me. He is such, he's such a Nosferatu. He reminds me so much of Gene Simmons. He's like yeah, that sure. aggressive Jew, <laughs> which is not a, not a thing I should be saying, especially as a Jew. But I mean, Well, you're
2: the only one who can say it. So. Well, I'm Jewish. Uh,
1: you oh, but okay. I'd, call, I'd say he's a Jackie Mason. Oh, yeah. There you go.
2: There you go. I think he's he the nicer, exactly nicer
1: like, version of the same guy. Okay. But I think
0: he sound. I think he 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 sound. They his voice reminds me of Gene Simmons' speaking voice. They both have that same sort of weird, not High quite wit Israeli wit accent. Wit. Yeah.
1: Well, Bill Graham is a he's a survivor German or something. He he yeah he, right. He like I know he came here as a kid and to escape World War II. I don't know if he was actually in oh, yeah. camp, but look at those eyebrows. Holy mackerel! Yeah. And those
2: lips. Wow, those lips go on for days. <laughs> So I just uh before I forget, we brought up Woodstock ninety nine. So I was in a band called Gaze in the Military. And we had a couple of offshoots. One was Sexual Freedom, which was just a complete improvisation band. Nice and then we were we did a uh power electronics band, which is just like complete bullshit, just bah, bah, bah. Yeah. And that was called <laughs> Rape Stock ninety nine. Oh nice. Very nice. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. And uh and we broke up right before uh, you know, we could get canceled for that by actually having like any evidence of that band existing. So
0: here's Umberto back in (laughs) with his, um, I I think it's interesting and we'll, we'll see examples of this. There's some, some people in the bands and in the audience, they look like they're wearing hippie cosplay outfits. Yeah. And then some of them look like, Oh yeah, this, I believe that this is, these are the clothes they actually would wear and they look good in these clothes, you know, like, like Hendrix, yeah. This is a ridiculous. That's like a renfair. Like sheepskin. Vest. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's got like look. There's like rams' horns. Yeah. I think.
2: Yeah, or, but he's, or, he's loaded. He's got a lot of money. He had to somebody build that that vest for him. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> um. So I think we're approaching. Um. What is actually, I believe, the first. Uh, onstage performance of this movie. I mean, we're only seventeen minutes into this three hour
2: forty five minutes. I movie. mean, I think it's twenty five minutes before Richie Havens. Oh, okay. Yeah. So 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 And then
1: I think the band
2: Sweetwater was the actual first act uh-huh. on stage.
1: Uh, now, what was, no, anybody was know Richie anything Avins. about them? It was Richie Havens? <coughs> okay. I think Sweetwater might what? have been the first band.
2: They might have been the first band then because I remember the oh there's wavy gravy. Um I remember the VH one movie Sweetwater about the band Sweetwater. <laughs> And I don't know why they didn't make them.
1: Wasn't the band in Almost Famous Sweetwater? That was uh, still still water. Right?
2: Why did you don't have
0: to they? bring up Almost Famous? What's <laughs> <laughs> the matter with you? It's
1: <laughs>
2: wrong? Do you, you know? I, we've never talked about this, but I hate that movie so much. I own it in every different format. Like I can't get enough of. It. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. There's different cuts of it, aren't there? Yeah. There's the untitled cut. Yeah, I cannot get enough. I've listened to every commentary.
1: Wow. That's why I like. I don't know anything about Sweetwater, but I think when I saw Almost Famous, I couldn't figure out. I was like, I know that band name, like Stillwater, and then went
2: on the cover Rolling says, Stillwater runs deep. Oh God. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, let's. I we say-, say, is there a worse performance in the history of photographed performances than that Patrick Fugit kid as young Cameron Crow? No. With his Muppet eyes and everything. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> We could do a special show on that for forever. That will go longer than the movie.
0: <laughs> so we're looking at Jerry Garcia holding up a joint. Which finger is he missing? Is he missing a finger on that hand that we're looking middle. at? It looks like that yeah, middle, finger. middle yeah, finger. Yeah, okay. It yeah. hey, is a middle finger. Whatever, what happened to his middle finger? Do we know? Is that a N- birth defect? Nod off
1: by it, a hippie or something?
2: Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. Oh, it's a bad acid. Um, well, let's, like a hot dog let's talk
0: about uh, Richie Havens um, alright I've always been charmed by Richie Havens um, me and too I, and always I was like hearing him talk yeah and watching him I realized something and maybe I knew this about myself already but I realized I'm far more impressed by a good rhythm guitar player than by good lead guitar players so like for me my favorite guitar part ever is probably the acoustic guitar on In Between Days by The Cure you know just like a, a fast strumming acoustic guitar that's impressive to me and like that guy bernard sumner of new order he used to just when he played uh he only ever played like rhythm guitar um and they didn't have a lead guitar player but i always thought like wow this is fucking great uh but give me like a fast strumming rhythm guitar player over like the typical rock god guitar pyrotechnics any day um so for me richie havens is like you know, God level guitar playing just cause it's all about like his insane. What is it? Mike, uh, lustig as a guitar player. What is it that Richie Havens what? does that nobody else does?
1: He plays almost exclusively with his thumb, which is insane yeah. on his, yeah, le- on his crazy. left hand. Yeah. Wow.
0: Because he's got what open tuning. He's got some special right. open tuning.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Open tuning and playing his thumb just has reach. That's like crazy and uh yeah he's just strum- he's just strumming really fast this the movie is the most i know about him oh
0: see cuz he's somebody that i used to see and hear a lot at these uh peace rallies and demonstrations that i was dragged to as a kid so like any time i was anywhere with my parents you'd hear richie havens in the background he'd be on stage and you know he's always playing the same fucking songs the handsome johnny and freedom and here comes the sun which i think is like one of the best like beatles covers um I remember going back and forth to Washington, D.C., like in the early 70s with my parents, or in the late 60s, apparently, too, although I don't really remember that. But apparently I was at some famous rallies in D.C. But all I really remember uh, about those things, other than Richie Havens and then the sound of Joan Baez kicking in every once in a while, would be like the sound of helicopters uh, the smell of like hot pretzels, and I just remember just being constantly annoyed and tired because it always seemed like we were walking and walking miles and miles from wherever my father found a place to park uh, the the car to wherever we really were supposed to be, which could literally be like ten miles away. That we were just walking around, and I just would want to be in a. I think we. I think I was like young enough that I could sort of get a ride in a stroller if I wanted to, but I was like, there was pressure for me to like do my own walking. <laughs> I just, uh, I really, <laughs> it was, uh, it's
1: where you uh, developed yeah, your I, hatred of music festivals.
0: It, <laughs> it, it absolutely is. It, you Come by it. Honestly, man. I do. Yeah. I do. But Haven's. So Haven's to me seems, um, genuine. Like, I think like he's yeah, wearing these sure. clothes cause he's comfortable in these clothes. And he's got those look at those nails
2: on his yeah, finger. yeah. I mean, he's amazing, he's great, he's great.
1: T- you know, I play with him at You man, and I do? love that shoe. It's just so bizarre, like, it's like his thumb is in that shoe, like that that yeah. shoe is made <laughs> for his thumb to stick yeah. out of. Yeah,
2: that's perfect.
0: So, uh, uh, Lustig, you never, you never saw Richie Havens, didn't you? Didn't Richie Havens no, play sure that? Uh,
1: Oh okay, but is you're not folk really. That city into thing is that what you're gonna say? Yeah, yeah. The folk city thing. I saw him pier. at I saw him at that Woodstock show. He was at that site. I saw him at the folk city thing on the pier, and I think I saw him at the Lone Star Cafe actually. Uh, but I like him, but it, I don't know. Just never got super into him. Great voice.
0: Yeah, because you're the opposite of me. It.
1: You don't give a shit about
0: rhythm guitar. You're all about.
1: Wait, my favorite guitar player is Pete Townsend,
2: rhythm oh, guitar player. Oh, okay, mostly. fair enough. Right, yeah. right. He's like invented it.
1: Yeah, um, but I don't discriminate. I like a, a lead as well.
0: I think it's a I think it's a defect of mine in that I don't I don't understand what's good and what's not good about lead guitar playing. Like we're gonna uh, we're gonna hear from uh, I think it's at, uh Ten years after, maybe. Um, Yeah. And I watched the guy from Ten Years After, whose name I don't even know. What's the name of the singer? Alvin Lee. Now, what did Alvin Lee ever ever do other than Ten Years After? Was he did he was he did he go on to have a solo career? Did he die? Uh, They were a big band. They
1: were huge. Yeah, they were huge, and they had songs that like um, and songs that that. You wouldn't associate with what they do in this movie. I'd love to uh, change
2: the world. Is there yeah. a big hit? Oh. That's like a
1: real, just radio-friendly pop. Song. Yeah, I love I
2: mean, that song. It's a rock song. song for sure. But
0: now, was that pre or post Woodstock?
1: I, it's got to be pre. I yeah, think. I think so. Yeah,
0: because I was, cause this is another one it of seems these like questions. A
1: real, like
2: 1968 song.
0: Yeah, but this is a question I had for you. Is that how many of these bands were made by Woodstock? And, you know, how many of these bands would be lost to the dustbin of history if they had not appeared in this?
1: Well, band? I think, I mean, I know, like, I didn't have all their records, although I have them now, God knows, even though I haven't listened to them. Uh, but, like, I remember having this 10 Years After Greatest Hits kind of thing. And they do, and it's all over the map, stylistically. Like, they do huh. uh, Woodchopper's Ball which is, I think, a Woody Herman tune or something. They do like a super sped up version of this jazz tune and then the songs like I'd Love to Change the World and then blues stuff like is in the movie. And uh, I would guess after this came out, they got locked into like, this is who you guys are, you know? Like it'd be hard to- And certainly Santana, I know, was made by this. Well, yeah, Santana was unknown at this gig. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, you talk about, you know, Bill Graham like picked like handpicked them to go from San Francisco. Yeah. And then just getting up there and just like just dropping they the fucking it. nuclear wow. bomb. Yeah. yeah. Like
2: nothing's ever gonna be the same after that. All right. Well we'll get to them and we'll also get wow. to ten years after. I, I don't wanna
0: jump the gun too much. Uh but um uh uh I think in a couple of minutes now they is when they start talking about um acid trips and there's this, somebody says I don't think there's any such thing as a right. bum trip. Uh and there's a, there's a, right there's that guy who explains what to do yeah. <laughs> you know what to do if you're yeah. on a bad trip or um you're that dog uh, I've never oh, I've, I've never, never had a bad trip.
1: Yeah. How about a bad you trip. Mike Lustig? You have Yeah. I've, had a, I've, I've never, had a bad trip.
0: I've never I've never uh taken acid if that's a drive never dropped acid <laughs> and what i want to say is that i've never <laughs> seen a, mm-hmm.
1: you took a what oh i was just gonna uh, I was tell my tell my bad trip stories yeah do it please one was uh this wasn't a bad trip and it was like a bad when you experience something fucked up when you're tripping it can really be bad and so like i went to actually a grateful dead show in nassau coliseum without a <laughs> ticket Say no more. Didn't get in. (laughs) Oh, you didn't get miracles. And people started smashing, they had glass on the perimeter of the arena and people smashed the windows and there was like a rush to get in and I was really tripping. I had taken liquid acid, which hits super fast, you know. Jesus Christ, uh, yeah. And there were cops on horses, like night sticking people and I was stuck in the middle of this like rush into the gate and that just freaked me out. But my worst trip was uh, in the meatpacking district. I took 16 hits of acid, which was a giant mistake. Jesus. <laughs> Glad you're here tonight, Mr. Lustig. Yeah. I will tell you, the last
2: time I took acid was the, at the Mermaid Parade in 1996. And I was having a good time. And then we went <laughs> to uh, my friend uh, Whitney's house after she was... Uh, the highest paid dominatrix in New York City. So we went to her apartment slash studio where she had all these taxidermied animals. And she had so much fucking money, she had a taxidermied buffalo in this wow. entire top floor of this house. <laughs> so I'm tripping looking at all these animals and stuff, just having a ball. And then it gets real late, and then me and Peter uh, Peter Landau, uh, we wanted to go buy Coke. And uh, so we were going to the bar, the, the Full Moon Saloon on 8th Avenue 46th, where a Coke dealer was. And we're going through Times Square, and we see five, this cop is leading Joe Franklin out of a building and getting him into a cab. So, <laughs> that's right. His
1: restaurant was right there.
2: That's right. Yeah. Oh, well his, well, his famous office was there, which was just piled. He was like the, like the ultimate hoarder nightmare. So, we go over and we start talking. We're talking, Mr. Franklin, we love you. We love you. And then uh, we're talking to the cop, and then Peter's like, Yeah, I write for Screw Magazine. He goes, I love Screw Magazine. Landau who's not tripping Assures me all this is true He assures me all this is true And then I at one point I looked 19. down and I saw that I. Would... So he's talking about I love screw And uh, so at the one point Talking to the cop I looked down and I was barefoot I had no fucking <laughs> shoes on I was... oh, That's probably God. illegal in New York City Wow. And, uh, well, it was, uh, it was ill-advised. Somehow I made it back. But then I will say, coming down from that trip the next day was very bad. In the shower, I punched a hole because I was just freaking out a little bit. So. And yeah. that was
1: it for me and acid. It's the only drug I miss. I, t- I, I took it drug. about two years ago. Uh, as to be, like, I hadn't taken it since high school. And then I took it about two years ago. Someone gave me some. And it was, it was good. It was like, it, it made me feel like I was in high school.
2: Bizarre. I mean, 16 hits.
1: Man. That was a mistake. I took eight, and we thought they were like kind how would of you weak. even take
2: Isn't right.
1: one the
0: recommended dosage? Like, how many hits of acid would be? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, understand. like, when I
1: took it two years ago, I took like three quarters of a tab, like, not even a full tab. Right. Is a tab you know, it's a all hit? made by whoever's. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's either on paper or. So we had gels, which were. We thought they were like a little weak, so we were, and we had been doing it a lot, so we upped it to like four, and then, I was, and then we were like, we're gonna do eight tonight. And we did that, and then uh, I drank someone else's <laughs> beer who had put all of their gels in the beer to dissolve them. Oh, Lord! And so my friend Damn. didn't trip at all, and I, I ended up in a vacant lot, just sitting like staring at my lap <laughs> for hours. That's like an urban legend story. It was horrible. Like a kid
2: who had 100 hits of acid he was going to sell, and he stuck them down the back of his shirt and rode his bicycle, right. and then the sweat absorbed all 100 hits. Mike yeah, Lustig has horrible. another urban I legend
0: mean, was it- story that will that we'll save for another episode, but Mike Lustig has an urban legend Do story I? about being on tour with Ruth Ruth at the Double Door in Chicago
1: and having some tummy troubles. Hmm. At the double door, I thought you were going to say because Ruth Ruth was in the movie Urban Legend. I thought that's what you, that. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's really? <laughs> yeah,
0: was, that, that's good. That would have been a much better. <laughs> so,
1: horrible story. <laughs> we went. Uh, uh We went to see that in the theaters. We were on tour, and we were all excited that we were going to be in a, our song was going to be in the movie, and it literally is the most like. The most inaudible song in a movie you've ever heard. It sounds like a fly buzzing in the background. Uh, to the point where I turned to Chris in the theater, I was like, "Is that us?" And he was like, "What?" I said, "Listen." Like, like it took that kind of concentration to hear it. You hadn't taken enough acid to hear oh, it. Probably.
2: I thought maybe, I thought, yeah. I thought maybe you were you, you guys weren't in the movie like uh, Oh no, like, <laughs> like helmet in the jerky Boys movie.
1: No. no, no, no. Mud honey and black sheep." So that's bear that we're looking at? That's Bear. Yeah. Red Cross and Spirit of 76. <laughs> That's right.
2: So wait, this is Bear? This is the guy with the high voice? Yeah. The big dude. Is yeah. candy. That's Bear. Oh, no, no, the big That's dude. That's Can't Heat. Right, okay. The big dude is Bear. The guy that would be called Bear is Bear. Oh, so here's a question that I want to... I got their that... cup. I have their 7 out here. Yeah, you showed it. Yeah, his name is Bob Bear Height. Well, I'm looking at the info. There's information. Oh, his good. brother is Richard Height. Is
0: that, Is that, was that his brother playing guitar that we just saw? Yes, it was.
2: From the Monterey Pop Festival to Woodstock, the canned heat, the canned heat, has matured and changed into a performing unit of rare professionalism, creating a series of memorable singles and albums and delighting those vast and ever-growing audiences in the process. This group continues to move forward, changes and thrives, delivering both to old and new fans a healthy diet of blues, rock and roll, and boogie music that made them famous. Mm. No one in this band was on a healthy diet. No, I was
1: gonna say in donuts.
2: Um, the um, so that's the information from the nineteen seventy five Seven Eleven Cup. The wow. uh, here are two
0: questions: One, do we know what the or what what the what the what the meaning of Canned Heat as a band name is? What does that refer to?
1: Do we know? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I always heard it as like lightning in a bottle kind of thing.
2: Yeah. That's what I would guess. Yeah.
1: And then my second question... Or maybe it's like a fart in a can or something. Yeah.
2: Right. That looks more like what
1: Big
0: Bear might be doing. Um, But my my second question is, this dude that we're looking at right now, who bums a cigarette from from Bear, is he just somebody who jumped up from the audience? Is that the... Is that a stage rush, or is that's that how somebody? It. Looks
1: like yeah, yeah.
0: That well, that's the only time that I think anyone rushes the stage in this whole movie. If that's the case,
2: it was a good trip, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, so can heat,
0: but we we spend a lot of time with the uh, drummer in can heat, and by the way, I, I don't think he's a good drummer.
1: No, no. This whole band, I. I, I Just this fucking proto Thurston Moore,
2: <laughs> and for the real Thurston Moore. Yuck. Uh,
1: this yeah. is all, by the way. I believe director's cut stuff. This is not in the movie. Oh, it's definitely not. Yeah. It's.
2: De- I mean, it's definitely not in the
1: regular movie. Yeah, this guy's having a fit.
0: Yeah, that looks like Ron Jeremy playing bass. <laughs> <laughs> He looks like he should be the
2: brother of, of bear. Maybe that's who it is. Um, uh, no, that's Fido de la para. Oh. See si, Senor. thank
0: you. <laughs> but uh, if I remember correctly, we also spend some time in this song looking at bear's tummy, which I appreciate it's a lot to look at. Yeah, yeah, it makes me feel a lot less terrible about the state of my own tummy. <laughs> so anyway, can heat. God bless him. And then we get to... Joni Baez. Joan Baez.
1: You realize how out of sync the running order of bands is in this, right? No. Tell me about that. So Woods, day one of Woodstock was like all folk. It was John, John wow, Sebastian, Marla Guthrie, yeah. all those acts. And I think right. Sweetwater played that day, and that was like as rock as it got. That makes total sense. Yeah. Day two It's like, like the
2: us festival.
1: Yeah. One day yeah, new yeah. wave, one day heavy metal. Yeah. And so then there was day two. Um I don't know which bands were which days, but day two and day three were all the big rock bands. And even Hendrix was even actually a day four an unplanned because it went so late he played in the morning on day four. He and played. was he was he was
0: he the last act? Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. The headliner, Yeah. But yeah, this oh. movie it it does. I think it does a disservice to it because it it you have no sense of like how it went, and also like day one there were like a hundred or two hundred thousand less people, so they're still are still packed, but um, it didn't become like dangerously packed until day two. Right.
0: So Joan Baez, she talks yes. about her husband David being in jail, and I really don't yes. care. But I I do appreciate the fact that she says, motherfucker. Uh, (laughs) I think she actually says it twice. And and she said it, and it dawned on me that I would pay some serious money to hear Joan Baez sing that darkness song, Get Your Hands Off of My Woman, Motherfucker. (laughs) Like, how great would that be? And then I realized, when I thought that, I also thought, I wonder if maybe... Joan Baez sang Motherfucker twice in Woodstock is what inspired those Darkness guys to write that song. <laughs> because the guy from Darkness kind of sounds like Joan Baez vocally. He, so. sure.
2: he does. He's got the the, the trills and
0: yeah. Yeah, the vibrato. Sure, yeah. But seriously, I, I maybe Joan Baez is on Cameo or something. I would love to... Th- I would throw 250 bucks at her to sing like the first verse of Get Your Hands Off of My Woman. <laughs> <laughs> Uh she also says um that she that uh David is on a hunger strike and I kinda All wonder right. how he did with that. I don't even know what I don't even know who David was.
2: Like Have you sh- ever heard the uh National Lampoon radio dinner album? No. There's a great Joan Baez parody called Pull the Tree Gross. And uh, <laughs> I won't sing any of the words, but I, I highly recommend it.
0: That sounds great. Um so she sings Joe Hill right. uh, which has always been a highlight of my family uh, freedom Seder as we call it uh, at Passover. And Mike Mcpadden, you have you yes. never came to my family freedom Seder didn't did, did you? I don't think so No I didn't I've been to a lot of
2: Seders, but never a riser. All right I'm well saying. next
0: no. year in Brooklyn but I, I mean maybe not next year maybe 2022. Yeah. 2022. Yeah. you and yours. Invited, Thanks, I'll be there. Invited yeah. to the Riser family Freedom Seder. Um, Thank you. Mike Lustig has been to more than one Freedom Seder and has heard my... Well, he's heard 40 people in my house sing along. <laughs> to Joe of, Hill. To, to Joe Hill. But <clears> I do <throat> think that that's a lovely song, and I think that she sings a lovely version. I almost thought that maybe this is the version that we play, but there's a couple things about it that make me think it's not.
1: That It's version. funny you say she sings a lovely version, because I can't imagine... There's much variance in Joan Baez performances. You know what I mean? Like, she strikes me as right. the kind of singer where it's like she's gonna nail it the same way every night. She does, um, but there's a couple
0: of notes difference that in this one from our Seder version. So she does, she does uh, improv a little bit. <laughs> but I, but I, I, I will say that Joan. Joan Baez's voice to me is ridiculous in like every way that a voice can be ridiculous. And so like good connotations and bad connotations. Right? Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Totally. Well, You're right. When it works, it's like so, it goes right through your heart.
1: Every time I hear Dylan talk about how much he loves her as a singer, I'm always like, really? Like, because she's amazing, but it's also a little, it's way over the top. Yeah.
0: Yes, and and she's somebody whose voice like stalked me throughout my demonstration and rally going childhood because she was at every single one of those events singing that same crazy way, right? Um, you know, and her it's ridiculous, but I would take her. I'll, i I take her over like Mariah Carey or um, Celine Dion
2: sure. or well, any yeah. of these sort of modern yeah, day they, sort they, of bozos. Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you another weird thing about my father. Because, you know, he was endlessly reading. Loved Joan Baez. Like, his his favorite, like,
1: non-jazz artist was Joan Baez. What's hard to... So, yeah. uh, Mike, I don't know. I I uh, sell records. Like, that's my job now, basically. Right. Uh, and so I'm looking through people's record collections all the time. Like, I go to their house, and I go through their old records. It's, there are certain artists where it's amazing how many albums are out there of theirs. And she's one of them. Like it's, I can't begin to count the amount of Joan Baez records you find in someone's basement. Like a, just to pick a random yeah. basement that has records in it. There's going to be Joan Baez records there. It's like, she was so much bigger than you think of her, I guess, because of being tied into that whole movement. But that's wild. She sold boatloads of records. Yeah, well, she was a superstar to me, but Mike,
0: well, that's interesting to me because I think we were talking on another show not too long ago about, and you had a very funny story about your parents playing uh, like uh, Glenn Miller stuff, right? That's the shit they listened to. Yes, yeah. But so that's but, what they tortured me with. So so but so did you hear a lot of Joan Baez too, or you did, or
2: he liked? I did. It? Well, yeah, that's what he would what he would play that on his cassette. Tapes and then the rest of the fucking house with the AM radio set to eleven three zero in New York, W N E W W N E W A M. Yeah, yeah. All bass all the way up, treble all the way down. Yeah. With the... Yeah. Hmm. Um, I think that well, she... my parents, by the way, born in nineteen forty two, so they were there for Elvis and the Beatles, and that's what they opted to listen to.
0: Yeah. What kind of music? Well, so so Mike Lustig in your house, it was it was your brothers who were sort of dominating
1: the yeah. turntables, right? Yeah, I mean my my parents uh were music fans, but it was it was popular music of their era. I mean it was for my mom it was Sinatra and show tunes and uh stuff like that. I mean, weirdly, my dad had this like foray into 60s like jazz rock. He, man, he managed a band, um, which is a totally a total anomaly for him but um, my mom probably, my dad could play piano uh, but they didn't you know I don't remember them playing records it was that it was more for my brothers What was the band that he managed? They were called the Free Spirits, which was they're really considered like the first jazz rock band, and uh, Larry Corel was the guitar player you know, became famous later on. But, um, what's insane is like, so they put out one record. Uh, but what's insane is they played with like the velvet underground and they played with Hendrix and the who, cause they played the Fillmore and like, just like, and I would imagine my dad was going to like, they, the, when the velvet underground were playing this club called the scene, which was in the forties, I think on the mm-hmm. West side, um, the Velvet Underground did like a residency there and the Free Spirits were there like every night. Hmm. So, nuts.
0: Wow. Well, Joan makes a nice warm up for The Who who are up next but I'm assuming that that was not like as you said they weren't really playing. That's,
1: so. Yeah, like more than 24 hours later.
0: So, I want to ask you I mean, I could spend all day asking you questions about The Who of another band that I can't you know, that just I just, I just don't Get it? I mean, I get it. I, the Hoover Five. You know what, like Ben? I hate
2: to say do this to her. I'm going to go with you on this. Uh, uh, I'm never going to deny their greatness. I right. never. I get it. Right. And it just doesn't speak to me. And to me, there's always something kind of embarrassing. And and right here, it's Roger Daltrey's <laughs> well, fringe Jacket.
1: Roger Daltrey is I've always not liked. I'm really when it comes down to it, I'm really a, a fan of them as a trio. Like Roger Dalton is yes. somebody I, right. on records, I don't care. And his voice is, is right. usually good. Sometimes not. But live, I, it's like I ignore him. No,
2: I mean, <laughs> to me, the rhythm section, it's like there's no way around. It's like live at Leeds is just, it's, yeah, it's, it's an adrenaline best. shot every time you put it on. It's, it's and
1: that's the truth for me. Like early who, they had their moments, but like I wasn't like obsessively listening to those records by a long shot. I remember actually Ben being in the car with me and my ex-wife and he put on uh, Who Sells Out and I didn't know what the record was. I was like, what's this? And he was like, wow. he was like you're kidding. I was like, no, because to me, The Who was just like, Live Leads," Leeds, Who's Next. like That was the stuff that I obsessed over. Um, the early stuff was like singles. like I'd listen to yeah. you know, the... Uh, compilation of their hits the early hits and stuff but
2: which they put out more of than like any band yeah Yeah. it's more cool
1: collection but to me they're the best live band ever from this this period through like 73 they're just i mean they're incredible
0: um well so they they do see me feel me which is fine uh but and and adultery's wearing the 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 fringe vest and the bare chest right. and all that stuff and then but Pete Townsend is wearing this white jumpsuit was that was that a, the, a typical outfit for Townsend at this, in this time?
1: yeah cause he like if you look at Monterey he's wearing like uh, a gold lamé sparkly paisley like 60's like total insanity ruffles and like uh, right, And at some point he was like, I hate this shit. I'm going to put on work clothes. And that's what that was to him. So he wore he wore those jumpsuits a lot. For, and were they all white? Yeah, for like a couple of so years. Would have been tro-
0: Imagine you on stage at the Double Door in a white Ooh. jumpsuit.
1: <laughs> it wouldn't have been white for long. <clears throat>
2: uh, but my, my other issue here with The Who is, how are you going to do summertime blues thank two you. years after Blue Cheer? Thank you. That's a good
1: uh, question. Uh, they did it better. Oh, I'm gonna,
2: <laughs> if we were uh, on Facebook, I would I would post the Dave Mason We Just Disagree video on
0: like, like the version, but. I'm gonna say this about summertime blues. It always bores me. But more than more importantly, it always seems like nothing more than an excuse for Entwistle or Clarence Clemens or whoever the fuck to do that funny lower voice part. Like, that just seems the whole point of that whole fucking song any time anyone covers
1: it. Well, that's the... I mean, the original version has that. Yeah. You yeah. know?
0: But then it's uh, all these fucking white guys, like, just doing this stupid,
2: you know... I don't know. Um, Fuck the summertime blues, I have to say. I, I'd give you a Dave Mason, too. And I would cite the uh, blue, cheer blue cheer version. version. Okay. Uh, yeah.
1: But I will say, A, summertime blue is also a director's cut thing. That's not in the original movie. Oh. Right. Um And... B, I don't know if you know this tidbit, but they don't have in the movie or anywhere, apparently, Townsend hitting Abby Hoffman with his guitar, which is like the thing I've always wanted to see and never will, I guess. Isn't there audio of that? There's audio of it, yeah. 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 But I don't know how they missed that. Or if they told they couldn't use it.
0: I do enjoy his guitar abuse at the end of Summertime Blues. Was that, is that always the song that he did that stuff in? Was that, is that how they ended their sets all the time? I mean,
1: in the early years, it was my generation. And then, I I mean, I only know this from like the Isle of Wight album. Um, Just another crazy documentary. Um, But on that album, I don't know what the last song is, but they, they would do Tom, they do like their who tunes, then Tommy, then they would do a bunch of covers. That was kind of how it generally went. So See, I think, so.
0: I think between the two of us, we're a total Who fan because I like the Who very early stuff, like the much more concise poppy stuff, like uh, Substitute. That
2: I right. think is fantastic. I oh, that's great. I mean, yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you. Yeah, no, I love that too, and I love the Who Sell Out too. I love that album. But.
0: yes, and then I also, and it's only because I was the right age at this time to be into anything. It was it, I like their early their '80s stuff, like You Better You Bet. Yeah. yeah, it's great. Eminence Front. When it Front. comes on the radio, I love yeah. it. Yeah, Eminence Front. Like,
1: that's my favorite Who's song,
0: probably. <laughs> Oof.
1: <laughs> you don't like See, Mike, Lester, I don't you mind don't that like song, Eminence like, Front. No, I like it, but I don't. Oh. I would. It's not in my top. Yeah, it's a different thing. 20. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, it's just, yeah, like, I agree. I was 13 and it was on my radio. I liked it. Yeah. I love it. I, I always just TV. thought it was like.
0: I, I don't know what that song's about, but it always just seemed like, wow, this is heavy and like political. And,
2: you know, Townsend, Townsend <laughs> singing the fucking song. I, I remember there was like a, a, a live version where it goes, it's Front, it's bullshit. And everybody's like, <laughs> yeah. It's a put on. Yeah, <laughs> it's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: What's that song really about? I wonder. I have no idea. Uh, so after The Who, uh, we get these. Uh, kids in the
1: back of this car I'm just realizing sorry did they cut out sparks from this from the director's cut that's not cut? in
2: the version we saw yeah Wow. Not to the, yeah. that's a
1: gigantic yeah. mistake well they
0: cut out sparks but we get I, it's got to be a solid 10 or 15 minutes of these two fuckers that we're looking at yeah. now these two kids in the back of the car yeah. and then I realized then I, at first I wasn't sure but then I was like oh yeah When they get out of the car, it's still these same two assholes talking, including (laughs) (laughs) this fucking guy who goes on in this monologue, this endless monologue. This may be, this is torture. He is not charming. No, and I don't know what he's talking about, but he talks forever and they can't seem to cut
2: away. Just hippie nonsense with his light blonde mustache. Yeah, that's a bad look. I don't like that mustache. Don't do it. Yeah, shut up,
0: dude. <laughs> now, then we get this guy uh, who's like a Ravi Shankar type. On stage. it is Ravi Shankar. Oh, it is Ravi. Shankar. Yeah, that's
1: sure. no, that's so we get him. Shankar. That's some yogi guy. That's not Ravi Shankar. That's not Ravi Shankar.
2: Oh, <laughs> see, I thought it. But <laughs> well, he was there though. He played. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Is like. Not him. Yeah, all right. I thought it was
0: interesting that if it was Ravi, Sh- Ravi Shankar that they show him talking, but not. Actually oh yeah, you playing. told
2: that Ravi Shankar didn't have a white beard. You're right. You're right. He was a youngster at that yeah. point. Yeah. And ah, then here we, we
0: go. We move right from the Maharishi <laughs> into yeah. Shannana. I want to say what what
2: the fuck was Shannana? I don't know. Well, they started at Columbia University, and I know this because I was dating a girl at Columbia University, and we were in the library, and they had the old yearbooks, and I looked up John Bauman. You so but you knew, but just, you knew uh, to you knew to look him up. Oh yeah, no, no, I knew that they were Columbia. Yeah, somehow I knew this. Yeah, the whole band started at Columbia University. Well, no, I don't, I don't know if, but the the core, whoever the founders were, John was uh, Bowser was.
1: One but of did them. they start purely as a live act? Was it supposed to be like some like? I mean, because I learned, I know it's later. I learned about them as a kid with the TV show. Right, right.
0: I knew them. Out of I, all I, the but, bands uh, in this movie, they're the ones I knew the most. But it was all from the TV <laughs> show. <laughs> but what but, are these space? What are these outfits that some of them are wearing right here? These gold. Well,
2: lem- that was that's funny. I'll bring up my father again. Well, we would watch the TV show, and they'd have those gold lamé suits on. He would be like. If they ever played, like if any guys started singing in those outfits, we would have beat the shit out of them in the fifties.
0: Yeah, I mean, is yeah, he but to- some of them are dressed like Bowser, you know, in the yeah. Happy Days gear, and some right. of them have this sort of like Earth, Wind, and Fire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> it's like the
2: Village the, People meets Happy Days meets Earth, Wind, and right. Fire. I guess the weirdest thing to me about this is that it's so it's nineteen sixty nine they're singing oldies that are from like 10 years earlier. Yeah. And again, I mean, the world had changed, but it was like a quantum leap. Unlike anyone could have imagined. But, uh, like, just think like, so. 10 years ago, it was 2010. Imagine, like, there was an oldies act going around just, like, in 2010. So, it's like,
0: yeah, it's, but my question
2: is, did uh, they have an aggressive
0: manager who got them onto these bills and got them on TV, or was there a real demand for Sean Like, was it like, oh, if we're going to do Woodstock, we got to get Sean to play? <laughs>
1: <laughs> these are questions we, we that, need to yeah, research. We, will, we will. This find. is one I just don't know, but I, I, uh, I would guess that maybe the hippies. Dug them because it was funny. If anything, that's it's it. Like yeah, no, it's a,
2: they were always a comedy element. And, yeah, and it was funny. And and then when they were little kids, that was the music on the radio for them. So yeah, it was fun to do a tribute like this. And they and they they're funny dudes, man. Well, this Look at them
0: yeah and looking at them triggered this memory for me that I know we, we've talked about this before that I was basically allowed to watch or see anything I wanted to but <laughs> with some limited exceptions and it was the Bowery Boys I wasn't allowed to watch on TV Hee Haw and I realized also Sha Na Na and it was all for the wow. same reason that my mom said it was too fucking stupid
2: for me to like to watch <laughs> and uh, I've, I've told my one of the, the oh, artists uh, please tell watched, it my, again my like, grandmother yeah please tell that so, now my grandmother, who had one of the earliest uh, remote control televisions, but uh, Sha Na Na was on the television. They had records on their head, and they were just kind of twisting, going like, wee, 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 whoa, whoa, wee, we. My grandmother freaked out about how stupid it was. <laughs> Frantically went to grab the remote control. The cigarette came out of her mouth and fell into the chair she was sitting on. <laughs> she starts freaking out, going, Michael, Michael, get a glass of water, get a glass I can barely move because I'm laughing A, because Shana Ana's hilarious B, because she's like burning down the house and, and just see the entire absurdity whole situation yeah. so that was it that became family legend and we would you know sometimes just put records on our heads and go wee 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 whoa wee whoa
0: <laughs> that's always my favorite part of the story is when you do that wee 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 whoa <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out what I think that my parents, who grew up in Brooklyn, I think they were wary of and sort of defensive about Brooklyn stereotypes and this whole greaser thing, I think, really led them the wrong way.
1: Maybe Sean and I was like the original Lords of Brooklyn. That was Flatbush? No, Lords of Brooklyn. You remember that band? What are
2: Lords of Brooklyn? Oh, from the 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like a... They were like rap rock, right?
1: Yeah, like... Uh, um, more rap. Yeah. They were on the same label as us, the only reason why I know them, but yeah. I think, Ben, <laughs> I thought you would know them because of that. No. Uh, Epitaph? Which label? No, the the subsidiary of American that put out Laughing Gallery. Oh, okay. What uh, was the name of that? Ventru. Oh, yeah. It... It's so embarrassing to even talk about it.
2: <laughs> they but, had song, It was with the song. I remember. It was, This is hardcore. Is it not? Maybe, uh the
1: only one I remember was yeah. uh, one that's like a Saturday Night Fever ripoff. The song might be called Saturday Night Fever. Oh, I think it is called
2: Saturday. I think so. Yeah. And uh, on, but it's like the same
1: thing as Sha Na Na, but with like like Tony Manero and, and
2: right, like uh, like seventies
0: Brooklyn yeah, yeah 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 but the uh, music, Lords of Brooklyn Saturday Night Fever Z. hang on yeah Lords I got it it's the Z. worst
1: so you want to hear the most embarrassing story ever please okay. American
2: Woman Sample
0: <laughs> they were Kid Rock before Kid Rock
1: yeah yeah it's exactly right.
0: <laughs> oh, hang on a second! You gotta, you gotta this see is this video. It's a
2: professionally released album. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait. Oh, I've seen the video.
1: Why? Well, when we need to look at it as a group. <sighs> <laughs> You're gonna die when you hear this story.
2: I gotta tell you, I found the Lords of Brooklyn because uh, when I was working at Hustler, yeah, they would just rip magazine, the rock magazine. They would just throw like. You know, swag or tapes or anything into this box, and you could take it. And I found this whole package on the Lords of Brooklyn. I was like, I gotta know more. <laughs> Being from Brooklyn. Gotta shout out Here we
1: go.
2: Dino Bots. And he's kind of like doing like the dance hall reggae rap.
0: They look like they—they they uh, could also do. They could—they could be. They could be Hasidic. They should have been the, the Brooklyn Jews. <laughs> wow, So yeah, what's your story yeah. there, Mike Lustig?
1: It's so painful, man. Yeah, I want to hear it. When Ruth, Ruth was like getting courted by labels. Mm-hmm. Like we had a few labels interested in us, right? And remember, like like when we were at Parksville Copy, they were like sending, faxing us, like. Uh, Island Records wants to sign you guys and this is you know blah 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 so we met with all these labels <clears throat> but Chris and I had this aversion, aversion to major labels because of what we went through with Janata which was Polygram and, and we felt we just totally got lost in the shuffle and... so we wanted like a smaller label so we thought American was super cool but there was a subsidiary called Ventru owned by uh, Amanda Demi who was um, Ted Demme's uh, wife. And and, he, that's, and,
0: and Ted Demi's related to Jonathan they the cousins yeah. or something? Yeah. Okay. yeah.
1: Ted Demi did that movie Blow. Oh yeah. No, and, I know
0: Ted He yeah. Who's the man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So his wife was given basically a label by Rick Rubin. And her only other band was Lords of Brooklyn. And so we go to this meeting and she's like talking herself up like incredibly well, but incredibly aggressively and grossly but then she showed us that video of like this is what we can do for you guys and she put that fucking video on and me Dave and Chris sat there and watched the whole thing and we still signed with them it killed (laughs) me this fucking day like we still agreed like okay we'll go with them that video should have been like run for the fucking hills so Uh, it hurts so much to see it do you guys know uh (laughs)
0: back when um uh, all About Chad was trying to get signed to a label and our astute music lawyer uh, had, came up finally after like years of trying to find anyone who would sign us, uh, came up with two choices for us. One of them was what we wound up with, which was terrible. This big pop label out of Philadelphia, which was some guy who had worked for some major label and then made a little bit of money and decided to start his own label. But our other choice was working, was, was signing with Kazanitz and Katz.
2: Wow and the, uh bubblegum yeah producers yeah yeah Oh, and
0: and kazanitz and cats came to my apartment in park slope to try to pitch wow. us on signing with them but they wanted to they wanted to rewrite our songs they wanted to like, get co-writing credit on all the songs and maybe we'd record or maybe they would just sign me to a songwriting it was all bullshit and i got fuck off but but I did have casinets and cats and <laughs> at uh 123 Seventh Avenue, whatever that was.
2: Well, allow me to brag. Yeah. Uh, Gays in the Military was is was on the Gulcher label, mm-hmm. which was the original home of Johnny Cougar. Oh, uh, wow. Before before he was even John Cougar, when he was still Johnny Cougar. They <laughs> yeah. put out that. Those record. were the best days for him. Label label made of mine, Mellon Camp. John Cougar Mellon. That's nice. Have you ever met Johnny Cougar? No. No. We he didn't come to the uh Culture Records Christmas Party. No. <laughs> <laughs> but you were there. Nah, oh. No, we, we weren't even invited to that. Oh, geez. They also put out MX-80 Sound, which is a great band. So.
0: Hello, faithful podcast listener. It's your old friend, Ben Reiser. Uh, we're almost two hours into our Woodstock podcast. And so I'm making an executive decision to... Save the rest for a part two. So come back next week for the conclusion of this thrilling journey through Woodstock, the movie, the director's cut. In the meantime, here's another great Ruth Ruth ditty to see you home. All right. See you next week. I
1: want to take you home. Like your own He don't like day